bit later, maybe you'd say a prayer for Kenny. Uh, Kenny, well, Kenny is uh, probably on his bicycle right now. Um, he went to Mexico for the weekend, and he's probably finished his 2.4-mile swim, and he's on to his 112-mile bike ride right now. And then he'll be on to his 26.2-mile run after that. So, yes, say a prayer for Kenny. Um, yeah, he's doing the Ironman. Next week, he'll be here, and you'll be able to say, I know an Ironman. All right? So that would be awesome. We'll look forward to celebrating that with him. Uh, we're in a series uh, on the life of Joseph, and um, I want to give just a little bit of background about some of the stuff we've covered so far. So, so far we've learned that Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob who had later become the tribes of the nation of Israel. Um, his brothers weren't real happy with Joseph. Um, he had been kind of a snotty little brother. And so they decided to throw him in a dry well. And then they decided, well, let's make a little bit of money off this deal. And so they sold him into slavery. He was then taken down into Egypt where he was put on the auction blocks in Egypt and sold again into slavery into the house of Potiphar, who was the head of the secret service um, in, in Egypt. And then uh, things were going really well for Joseph. He became the manager of all of Potiphar's assets, were, which were quite extensive. Um, and that went really well for about two years. And then Potiphar's wife came along, and she uh, turned the tables on Joseph and lied about some things. And Joseph was unjustly thrown into prison, um, and where he had been for eight years. Um, and then along comes the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. These are the guys that taste and eat the food that the Pharaoh would consume. Uh, just to make sure that it's safe, as well as oversee some of that area of the household of Pharaoh. And uh, these two guys had a dream, and Joseph interprets their dreams for them. Uh, one of the dreams sends the guy, uh, the cupbearer, back on up to the Pharaoh's house. Uh, the other fella, uh, the dream has him having his head chopped off, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, well, two more years go by, and we arrive at Genesis chapter 41. So Joseph has now been in jail 10 years, maybe 11 years. He's 30 years of age, and uh, Pharaoh has a dream. Um, and this dream that he has, uh, and I'll talk about the details of this here in a little bit, but Pharaoh needs a dream interpreter. He hears that Joseph is somebody who can interpret dreams. So he summons Joseph to come and shares his dream with him, and that's the encounter that we're going to read today. Genesis chapter 41, I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet. We're just going to read two verses out of this whole story uh, and then get into the details here momentarily. But Genesis chapter 41, to get us started, verse 15 and 16, this is Joseph before Pharaoh. Verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. You may be seated. There's a whole lot that we'll learn out of those couple of verses, but we'll get to that momentarily. First, let's get to Pharaoh's dream. If you would, uh, let's go back to verse 1, and we'll read about Pharaoh's dream itself. It says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. That is, two years after the cupbearer and the chief baker had their dreams interpreted. Joseph has still been in jail this whole period. And it says, verse 2, And behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. So these seven cows, cows were sacred animals to the Egyptians. Uh, the Egyptian goddess Isis who was uh, the goddess of fertility. She was married to Osiris. Their symbols were that of cows. So she was a cow, he was a bull, and many of the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And so a cow was a very sacred animal to the Egyptians. And so for the Pharaoh to see cows arriving in his dream says something about the gods are stirring in this dream, means something here. And so it says that they come up out of the Nile. These cows are plump, they're full, they're just the way you would want a cow to be looking um, as you're thinking about harvest time. And so they're eating the reed grass along the Nile River. Verse 3, it says, And behold, seven other 
other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank. So these gaunt, these thin-looking cows, they don't look very healthy, they don't look very good. They come up and they just stand there alongside the other cows that are just, just uh, grazing along. And you can imagine at this point in Pharaoh's dream, um, he's thinking, this is kind of odd, because earlier when the plump cows show up, he's thinking, hey, things are really great for me, right? And then these other cows show up and he's a little disturbed. Maybe his eyeballs are starting to twitch a little bit as he's in that REM sleep. It says, verse 4, and the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And then it says, Pharaoh awoke. So Pharaoh is very disturbed by the fact that these plump cows just got eaten by the thin cows, and he's wondering, what does all this mean? Um, we had pointed out last week that dreams to the Egyptians were they regarded as a way that the spiritual world would communicate with the natural world. That the spiritual world, the gods would communicate, would tell things, would give predictions about things that were going to happen, and they would do that through dreams. And so because of that, the Egyptians had dream interpreters. They had dream doctors that would literally catalog uh, people's dreams down through the decades, down through the centuries. And if there was symbols in those dreams that then ended up becoming something in reality, they would then go back and say, you know what, then this is what this particular symbol means when it's in your dream. And so that they would, so he had these dream doctors, and, and, uh, but in this case, he just is in the middle of the night. He has his dream. He wakes up. He calls for somebody to get him a glass of water. They bring him a glass of water. He's kind of disturbed a little bit. Maybe he starts to get drowsy again. He falls back to sleep. Verse 5. Um, it says, he fell back asleep and a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. Verse 7. And the thin ears swallowed up the... Uh, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So again, Pharaoh has another dream very similar to the first one. He's again wondering, well, what does all this mean? So you imagine he summons all the doctors and all the do dream doctors and such, and he's trying to figure out what all of this um, is talking about. What is it, what's it trying to communicate to him? Well, while all of this is going on, while these dream doctors are trying to interpret his dream and they're having no success, um, there's a guy over in the corner. It's the cupbearer. He had been in, thrown in jail two years before, and he remembers how he had had a dream. And there was this young Hebrew there that interpreted his dream for him, and he's watching the Pharaoh get increasingly agitated the fact that nobody can interpret his dream. And so he says, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, Your Excellency, I want to let you know, uh, verse 12, he says, a young Hebrew was there with us when I was in jail, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him our dreams, and he interpreted our dreams to us, verse 13. And as he interpreted it to us, so it came about. In other words, what the guy told us about our dreams is actually what ended up happening. He told us that this is what your dream means, and this is what's going to happen, and sure enough, that's, that's how it works. So you have a talented dream doctor that's living down there in your jail. I just thought maybe you would want to know about that at this, while you're agitated. Um, and so then he says, uh, where am I at? And so verse 13, so he says, and then I was restored to my office, verse 13. Um, and so Pharaoh, realizing he's getting nowhere with these advisors of his, he sends for Joseph. Now, verse 14 has a little interesting detail in there that I think is worth us pointing out. He says in verse 14, he says, Then Pharaoh sent, um, he sends for Joseph, and Joseph shaved himself, it says, and he changed his clothes, and then he came in before Pharaoh. Um, I would think that if I was summoned to go before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's agitated, he's irritated, he's not getting the answers that he wants, and he's becoming kind of just difficult, and everybody's realizing that things are beginning to rise and that things are going south, I would think that they would get Joseph up out of the prison as quickly as they could. That they wouldn't stop. Maybe they'd tell him to tuck in his shirt or comb his hair or something like that on his way in. But it says that he stopped and he shaved himself. Now, this is a very interesting little detail because in that part of the world, most of the men did not shave. I mean, they had beards. It was a symbol of their masculinity. They had perhaps longer hair. And so this would have been very common all throughout the ancient Near East, except in Egypt. 
In Egypt, if you look at the ancient hieroglyphs, it was their custom to shave their face, to shave their head, and in some cases shave their entire body. And so we see Joseph doing this in preparation to go before the Pharaoh. So what that tells us is that the Bible is completely in step with the customs of Egypt at that time in biblical history, which means that the, the trustworthiness of the Bible, of the biblical record, stands steadfast. Isn't that wonderful? Just those little details in there remind us that the Bible is true in all that it says. Um, let's go on. Joseph is brought in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I've had a dream. We read that a moment ago, verse 15. Then verse 16, Joseph replies, verse 16, it is not in me. In other words, I can't do this. I'm not the one who's going to be able to interpret this dream for you. He says, but I can tell you who will. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That's a really impressive statement. Joseph just gives testimony to God. He's standing before a guy who can wave his hand and have Joseph's head cut off. A guy who does not share Joseph's faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. And yet he gives testimony to him. This is a guy who worships Ra, who worships other, this other religion, this other cult. And Joseph says, hey, you know what, but I serve the God of my father, the God of my grandfather, the God of my great-grandfather, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that God is going to tell you what your dream is, what your dream means. And that's impressive to me. Joseph gives a faithful witness. So Pharaoh tells uh, Joseph his dream, and then Joseph tells, and then he tells him his second dream, and then Joseph interprets these. Verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. That is the two dreams that you've had. They're both talking about the same event. It's just different symbols within these dreams, but they're both talking about what's happening as the same event. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 26, the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears of grain are seven years. The dreams are one. Again, they're pointing to the same event. This is all about seven years. Verse 29, here's what all this means. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. Verse 30, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, verse 31, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by the reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. In other words, there's going to be this famine that's going to last for seven years, and when this famine hits after the seven years of plenty, nobody's even going to remember those seven years of plenty. All they're going to be thinking about is crying about how we can't grow any crops. This is going to be a severe famine that's going to hit the land. Verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed of God, and God will shortly bring it about. In other words, by the reason that he gives you this dream in two different ways, but it's talking about the same thing, is just saying all the more that God is saying, this is what's going to happen. There's no changing this scenario. Now what follows, this is pretty fun here. This is my little fun moment, okay? All right, nerdy, Gordon, right? So, what follows is the first time that I can find in all of recorded scripture where somebody gives a sermon, somebody gives a speech, and it's followed by the most important question. <laughs> See, all things originate, right? And so what we find here is that Joseph beats the counselors to the punch, and he tells Pharaoh, hey, look, here's what you can do with this. This is how this thing applies. This is the difference. Now, we haven't got our difference yet. But this is the difference, Pharaoh, this makes to your life. And so he says, verse 33, Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Given that I've told you what's going to happen, God has said this is declared this way it's going to happen. You need to find a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Verse 34, take a fifth of produce during the seven plentiful years. So take one twentieth of every, or one twentieth, one fifth of everything, 20%, right? One fifth of everything that comes in and you need to create storehouses for all this grain and you need to create those storehouses in the cities. This is going to be a pretty massive um, infrastructure 
program. They're going to have to build these storehouses that can hold the capacity of one-fifth. Think about that. One-fifth of seven years of abundant, plentiful grain. Not just seven kind of okay years, but seven years of just, it just keeps coming and the stuff just keeps producing. And it's amazing. So one-fifth of that we're going to have to set aside in storehouses that we're going to have to build. We're going to have to build these storehouses in each of the cities. So these granaries are going to have to be all over the, the, entire, uh, the entire land of Egypt. This is a big undertaking, he says. Verse 36, And so food shall be a reserve against the seven years of famine that are occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Now, some commentators have speculated the reason why Joseph did this, and I, I don't agree with this, but I'll tell you why here in a second. But some commentators have said that Joseph just says this because he's interested in the job. He knows what's going to have to happen. He thinks that he's, he's basically self-promoting here. He's self-seeking here. And some commentators have said that. Well, I don't agree with that. And the reason I don't agree is because Joseph just got brought up out of a prison where he's been for 10 years, where he had no expectation of his situation changing at all. He's a foreigner. Why would they make him the prime minister of this great land or promote him in any way? I mean, the only things that he's ever overseen was the house of one of... Uh, Pharaoh's officials, and then the jail. And he's been in the jail for the last 10 years. I mean, that's just silly to think that he would get that kind of promotion or was aiming for that kind of promotion. He's just telling him, hey, look, this is what you need to do. If you've got the information now, you know what's going to happen. This is what you need to do as a result. So even though Joseph might not have been seen all this coming, Pharaoh recognizes immediately Joseph's potential. And he says to him, verse 39, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. He recognizes, again, the potential in Joseph. Verse 40, And you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. I mean, what a promotion. He's saying you are the second highest person in all of the land. Verse 42, then Pharaoh took out his signet ring from his hand, he put it on Joseph's finger, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And then Pharaoh renamed Joseph, verse 45, he called him Zaphoneth Paneah. Now some, I don't know, this doesn't really matter, but anyway, I'll just share it with you because I read it this past week, but there's really no agreement as to what that name means. Some people think it means provider. Nobody wanted to go on record to say that they know what this means. But anyhow, perhaps that's what that new name meant. But it was an Egyptian name that was given to Joseph, and um, it established him in, with authority. Um, and then Pharaoh gave Joseph a bride, middle of verse 45, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. She becomes his wife. And I think we would all agree that considering Joseph's lot in life up to this point, he's just hit the lottery. I mean, hit it big, right? This, is, this has just been, it's a total 100% 180 of the trajectory of his life up until this point. Um, and so he becomes, he goes from prisoner to prime minister as quickly as you can say, pyramid. And all of his heartache and all of his success, I'm sorry, all of his, all of his setbacks, all of his disappointment, all of that literally just turns around in a single moment. He is now the most powerful man second only to the Pharaoh himself, of the most powerful nation in all of the world. All right, well, that's our um, treatment of this text for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question, right? Because they asked it back then. We continue to ask it today, right? What difference does all this make to my life? Um, you say, Gordon, I mean, I appreciate all this. It's a great story about Joseph. But what difference does that make to me? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, I got a picture for you here. This is of a baseball player. 
Um, I'm just curious. Well, of course, I put his name up there, right? Kind of ruined it. Did I put his name up there? Yeah, I did. So, um, You knew who that was, right? Some of y'all. Dave Dravecki, does that name sound familiar to you? Okay, shaking her head. Some of y'all, maybe. All right, so he was a pitcher back in the 80s. He was first um, came on the scene as a pitcher for the Padres. He was just kind of mediocre, okay? And then he did much better, and he was part of the, of the Giants' run to the World Series in 1988. I think they lost in the 88, and then they won in 89. Um, but the interesting thing about Dave Dravecki is um, in 88, he had a, a, a tumor was discovered on his humerus bone. He's a left-handed pitcher. His tumor, a tumor was discovered as a cancerous tumor. Um, they had to remove it and part of his trapezius muscle, uh, a good section of it, um, in order to get rid of the cancer. Well, he, he, the doctor said, you'll never pitch again. And everybody knew he would never pitch again. But a year later, a year later, in 1989, he was back on the mound again throwing pitches. And he made his way all the way up through the minors. And on his, the game where he came back, his first game out, um, he pitched five solid innings. And in the sixth inning, this is his first game back in the majors, in his sixth inning, standing ovation. The crowd was just so happy. Everybody knew the story. It was just a wonderful story. And in the sixth inning, he threw a pitch, and his, his bone broke in his arm. And they said you could hear it all through the stadium. Awful. Rough. So... Um, it collapsed on the mound. Um, two years later, he, here's another picture of him. He had to have his arm amputated because the cancer had come back. Um, so it, just a really fascinating story of adversity and of overcoming that adversity. Um, Barbara Walters, of course, you know, hey, this is a human interest story. I don't know, did she go with 2020 or was she on 60 Minutes back in the 80s? I don't know, some of y'all remember who Barbara Walters was? Dave Dravecki, Barbara Walters, I don't know. Dating myself here a little bit. But Barbara Walters uh, interviewed him uh, after he had had his arm amputated. And he, was, he had been known, when he was part of the Giants organization, he was part of what was called the God Squad. Again, I don't know if anybody remembers this or not, but he, there was a group of guys who just wouldn't go out and paint the town like all the rest of the athletes were doing. They stayed back at the hotel room, and they had Bible study. And they just became known as just a really strong Christian group. And so a couple of years after um, his amputation, Barbara Walters sat down with him to talk about this, and she asked him the question that I thought was pretty fascinating for her to ask him this. She said, my question to you is this, why would God let this happen to you? Why would God let this happen to you? And he paused for a moment, and he kind of giggled, as you and I might do when we're asked a question that we really don't know the answer to. And he said this, he said, Barbara, that is a hard question. And he said, I certainly would not have chosen this for myself. And frankly, I do not know why God let this happen to me. Except that I know that God is going to use this in my life to help other people better. In other words, to help, be better able to help people. And that's what I'm committed to doing. Isn't that a wonderful answer? He said, Barbara... I mean, he was intellectually honest. You've got to respect the guy. You've got to respect anybody who's intellectually honest like this. He said, I don't have the answer. And I certainly, I love that part of the answer. I would not have chosen this. He's being honest. I would not have chosen this for myself. Um, and, but yet he gave a godly perspective of things. He said, in spite of this, I know that God knows what he's doing. And I know that he's going to use this to make me better able to help others. So what was Dave Dravecki saying? He was articulating a biblical worldview, a biblical outlook on his life and on his pain. He recognized that though sometimes we cannot explain it and that though sometimes it does not make a bit of sense, that we know as Christians that God is going to use this. We serve a redemptive God. Whew. Isn't that wonderful? 
that God takes the stuff that enters into our lives, he takes the stuff that happens in our lives, and he can work that clay, and he can turn it into something that is redemptive and brings him glory. It seasons us, it matures us, it deepens us to make us more useful to him so that it will increase his glory. And Dave Dervecki is just saying that he trusts God. You know, anybody who's ever been through a difficult downturn in life has to make a decision. Am I going to continue with God or am I going to get bitter? Am I going to continue in an intimate relationship with the God that I serve or am I going to hold him responsible for not changing my circumstances? And that's a tough, tough decision to make. And Dave Dravecki said, you know what? I can all have the answers. I don't know why God did this to me. I wouldn't have chosen this. But I trust in my God. Flip back over with me to Genesis chapter 41. Um, there's something interesting there that I want us to see. Genesis 41, beginning at verse 15. Remember, it's been two years. I mean, Joseph has been in this prison for eight years. Two years uh, then the cupbearer and the, and the baker show up, and he thinks, maybe there's a little hope. He shares with the cupbearer, can you please just pass along my situation to the uh, pharaoh? It's been two years, hadn't heard anything. I mean, this guy's gone from maybe a little bit of hope to back into despair, just up and down and up and down through his life. It's been 10 or 11 years since he's been falsely accused, 13 years and since he um, was thrown in the bottom of a well by his brothers and sold into slavery pretty long run here of disappointment. He's 30 years of age. Genesis 40 and verse 15 says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Listen to Joseph's response. It is so telling. He says in verse 16, Joseph answered, It is not in me. I can't do it. But God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Friends, what that verse tells me, it tells me that Joseph has not given up on God. God and him are just as tight in that moment as they were when he was living under his father's roof and everything in his life was going according to plan. I'd even venture to say that Joseph was more intimate and more close with his heavenly father in those years of being in prison than he ever perhaps would have been in those years living under his father's house. The point is, Joseph, like Dave Dravecki, did not allow difficulty and suffering and unfair circumstances to steal away his trust and his confidence and his relationship with his God. Nobody would have blamed Joseph. It would have been so easy for him to just melt into a puddle of self-pity. And to become bitter toward God. Nobody would have blamed Joseph for doing that. Folks, but as we said a few weeks ago, self-pity and blaming other people are an unproductive exercise. No one in the history of the world went on to do greater things for God by holding resentment and animosity in their heart. Those things will eat us up. What I'd like us to do with the few moments that we have remaining is to show us some of the benefits that came to Joseph out of his suffering. Because maybe we're not convinced that this really could be a good thing. And so let me just share with you a couple of benefits that we see to Joseph 
and preparing him for becoming the prime minister that we see in his life. The first benefit to Joseph, number one, is that his suffering brought humility. It humbled any high opinion that he may have had about himself. Remember how Joseph, back when he was living with his brothers, told them about the dream that he had had and how they were going to bow down to him? I mean, what a little snot, right? I mean, come on. He's 17 years old. He's talking to his older brothers, and he's telling them about how they're going to worship him one day. Are you kidding me? You're going to bow down to me? Man, who do you think you are? Right? He was an arrogant little snot. And not only that, but he walked around proudly prancing around town with his coat on, right? And his, that his dad had given him, reminding everybody that, hey, I'm the number one son, right? And he was proud to show that to everybody. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 says this Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Friends, we need to have a realistic view of ourselves and of our abilities. And there is nothing like failure, and there is nothing like disappointment, and there is nothing like a little suffering and pain to deflate any overestimation that we may have about ourselves. And 13 years later, standing before Pharaoh, we see an entirely different man. What made the difference? Was it success? (laughs) No, it wasn't success. It was that Joseph went through a season of disappointment and suffering. Thirteen years of disappointment and, and pain had brought Joseph down to size. And the Bible says, James chapter 4 and verse 6, that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we might conclude that it is in our best interests for God to humble us, because these are the people that God works with. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Friends, God does not allow suffering into our lives because he does not love us. Sometimes it is there to convince us that we need him. If you're here this morning, you've never entered into a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that the reason why you're going through a downturn in your life is because God's because of this. But perhaps, perhaps it may be that God is trying to get your attention. And he is trying to convince you that you need him in your life. And so why not bring an end to all of this and surrender your life to him? There's a second thing that suffering and heartache can produce in us, and that is to produce dependence on God instead of upon ourselves. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, what a wonderful passage of Scripture. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, isn't that exactly what Joseph is doing when he's standing before Pharaoh there, saying, look, I can't do this. I don't have it within me to interpret it, but I know the one who can tell you what your dream means. Joseph acknowledges God. Here was a man who knew what it meant to depend upon God, not only to interpret dreams, but to run his whole life. And one of the results of failure and pain is that it shatters our fleshly self-sufficiency. It forces us to realize our inadequacy and our limitations. One of the greatest blessings, friends, that God will ever bring into our life is that he will shatter us of our self-sufficiency. What does the scripture say? Does it say, blessed is the man who trusts in himself? That's not how it reads. Scriptures say, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. That we put our confidence there, not in our own ability. 
You know, I don't think that there's a man or woman alive who has learned to trust in the Lord who has not first tried trusting in himself and then failed. And that's why God lets us fail, to take us through that stage so that we can learn to trust him. Here's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. Um, Abraham Lincoln established the first national day of prayer in America. Um, it was right after the Civil War had taken place. And here's, what's, here's, why, here's why, the reason why Abraham Lincoln said we needed to be praying as a nation. He said, intoxicated with unbroken success, we as a nation have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God who made us. And so he said to the nation, we need to humble ourselves. We need to find our knees and we need to be reminded, right, that we're not self-sufficient, that we can't do it all, but that we serve a God who can enable us. One of the purposes of suffering is to teach us to depend on God and not on ourselves. Third and finally, what's the other benefit of God sending suffering our way? Number one, it was to humble us of our high opinion of ourselves. Number two, to teach us to depend on the Lord. And third and finally, God sends suffering our way to produce in us mercy and compassion for other people, to produce in us mercy and compassion for other people. Hebrews chapter 5 talks about the role of the high priest. And here's what it says of the high priest. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 2, that he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Since he himself is beset with weakness. So in other words, how does a person become gentle in dealing with other people, especially with other people who fail, with other people who require more patience, with other people who are wayward? How does that happen? Well, friends, it happens by letting us go through some failure ourselves, by letting us go through some pain ourselves. When we've been down that road, when we've experienced disappointment, it makes us a whole lot more gentle, a whole lot more compassionate when it comes to dealing with people who are in similar situations. I don't know anybody who has ever become a person of mercy and compassion because they had a lot of success in life. I mean, some of the most merciful and compassionate people you ever meet are people who have been beat down by life the most. They know what it means to be desperate. They know what it means to be disappointed. And so when they see that on the faces of other people, boy, they're just ready to stop and share. Um, God is determined, as our Heavenly Father, for us not to live a shallow life. My counsel is don't accept a cheap, simplistic explanation for the heartache in your life. God does not want us simply to rebuke the devil or to claim the blood of Jesus over our trials and expect it all to just go away. Rather, what Jesus is inviting us to, what the scriptures are inviting us to, what we saw in Joseph's life, what we saw in Dave Dervecki's life was people who submitted, and it's calling us to submit to the yoke that God has placed on us. To let sorrow do its work, to trust God, even through the tears. For it's in our failure and our defeat and our setback and our disappointment that God will develop true faith and true humility and true depth of Christian character and true compassion for other people's lives. You know, I know some of us here this morning are facing some very difficult and painful situations and we're asking the question, God, like Barbara Walters, why did you let this happen to me? Friends, I do not have the magic answer. I don't know why. 
We can speculate. We can come up with different things. But I just don't know why. Dave Derecki didn't know why. We wouldn't even have chosen that for ourselves. But I can tell you that God knows what he's doing. And I can tell you that pain and heartache is a part of God's plan for every Christian's life to make us into men and women of God. And I'm here to say that whether you understand this or not, we have to make a decision. Do I still trust in this God? Will I continue to surrender my life to him? We can go down the road of bitterness and it'll eat us alive. Or we can say, you know what? Like Dave Drabecki, I don't understand it, but I know that I serve a redemptive God who will take the bad stuff that happens in this world and he'll turn it into something good. You think about Joseph. He didn't even have Romans 8, 28. And yet he stood there and gave witness to his God anyway. God will bring it around for you, friends, just like he brought it around for Joseph. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, talking to us today. A place where we, where we live, a place where we hurt, a place where we question. Um, and it's good to be honest. Um, Dave Dravecki was honest. Uh, and I appreciate that, Lord. I appreciate guys like Joseph who sat in a prison cell for 10 years unjustly. Who I'm sure asked questions and had nights of despair. But Lord, they didn't succumb to that. At the end of the night, as the sun was rising, they were ready to follow you again. They were ready to walk through life with their questions, not knowing the answers. Lord, enable us to do the same. It's a tall order. It's a big ask. But yet, Lord, that is what you're asking, to trust you, to trust you through the tears, to trust you through the failures, to trust you through the disappointment, to place our lives completely, totally in your hands, to let this season do its work in us so that, Lord, we can serve you better. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for laying it all on the line for us, for being willing to demonstrate that this is the way of the Father. You were submitted, you were surrendered in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. Lord, birth that kind of a heart inside of each of us. We give you the space. Use it, Holy Spirit. Draw us unto yourself. We pray this in Christ's holy name.